Bet Show with Jimmy Jelinek and Dennis Quaid. Uh, Jimmy, I know you love cats, which is suspicious, but to each their own, right? But we're going to talk to the creator of CatCon, the world's largest commercial expo and convention dedicated to cats. Hang on. Are you hearing some weird feedback? I hear like a, it's like a... Oh, that's Peaches. Oh, that's Peaches? Oh, okay, cool. All right, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, so it's about CatCon. It's like Comic-Con for cats. It's this amazing cat convention that they hold every year in Los Angeles with like... 30,000 people show up. 30,000 people show up for a, a cat convention? Yeah, they hold it at the Pasadena Civic Center. And it's it's not like cat ladies. It's more like cats and culture. It's kind of like this show, but all about cats. It's, yeah. It's pretty cool. Do people bring their cats? No, you can't bring your cats because... There's that, about 30,000 cats. It would be a disaster and you'd smell like piss. But um, there is cat adoption. They have all the famous cats and you can meet them. You can buy merchandise you can buy apparel there's panels about different aspects of cat ownership and cat life and um it's a, just a, a celebration of cats if you are uh, of a of cat persuasion what is it that you think makes a cat person as opposed to a, a dog person you know i think they've been studying this for hundreds if not thousands of years i think they the cat-dog divide is such that you're either one or the other. I think that cat people, myself included, are a little bit more introverted. They prefer the great indoors and they just want to be with themselves. And they're, you know, they're basically just more introspective people in, in general. Whereas dogs are extroverted. Dogs want to please you. Dogs want to love you. Cats are just like, whatever, fuck off. Yeah. Uh, dogs, uh, people are, are with dogs a little bit like they are with their children. They're, they're, they consider them a reflection of themselves, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Cats are just individuals. You know, they're just, they're their own thing. And you either got to be on their wavelength or, or not. There is a connection there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's something I should probably examine. I'm thrilled to be speaking with our next guest, Susan Michaels, creator of CatCon. She's at the forefront of emerging pet culture, having created the first convention that harnessed and translated online cat culture into what it is today, which from its inception has proved to be a stroke of genius in how she curated and translated what is in essence an online phenomenon of meme culture and social media. Launched in 2015, it proved to be an immediate hit, with over 12,000 people showing up to a downtown LA warehouse called The Reef over two days to experience the latest in cat culture and entertainment. Since then, it's grown to become a massive three-day exhibition held each August at the Pasadena Convention Center, with over 36,000 in attendance and overflow buildings to handle the show's size. It's every bit as ambitious as Ted for the feline enthusiast, but with all the fanfare and entertainment of Comic-Con, with panels of speakers, famous cat influencers, and a thriving product marketplace selling everything a cat enthusiast could ever want, and a few things they probably don't. Michaels had always been fascinated with cats and what they represented to us. So in 2014, with a background in the art world, she held the first cat art show in Los Angeles. 
I saw that there was a void of marrying sort of cats and culture. So I created Cat Art Show in 2014 with artists like Shepard Ferry and Mark Ryden and Barry McGee. And when I did the show, I had 100 works of art with Cats as Muse done by these various artists. And by the way, Shepard Ferry is allergic to cats, but he created a piece, thankfully for me. But 4,000 4,500 people showed up at this art show and they were all very young and very hip and very much the art show crowd. And I realized, holy shit, there's this huge void. These people are not being tapped into. This is huge market. And as I did more research, I realized that it spread way beyond sort of the art side of things and into pet culture in general. From this came the first CatCon in 2015 with a crowd that looked nothing like the stereotypical cat person. You know, the show is a curated show, going back to what I called schlock and awe. One of the reasons of, another reason for creating this show was when you say cat show, people automatically think of a breeder show. They think of the crazy cat lady. And yeah, yeah. I really wanted to dispel or debunk that point of view that we weren't men and women, weren't a bunch of hoarder spinsters smell like cat piss, you know, people, yourself included. I actually do smell like cat piss, but that's for totally other reasons. Let's go back to the art show and the fact that Daniel Salen, Banksy's show producer for the Barely Legal Show, actually produced your cat art shows for you. Yeah, Daniel has produced all three of my cat art shows. I do it every two years. Hopefully we'll do it this year as well. Sadly, Banksy did not participate. I did put out the ask and it didn't happen. But, you know, Daniel was really instrumental in the curation of the show because he did, you know, Banksy's Barely Legal and brought in that wonderful pink elephant and yeah. was huge in Exit Through a Gift Shop. He's just got such a great curatorial eye. And that goes back to, you know, what you were talking about, about the programming culture and the troll culture and all that sort of thing and about how cats they're they're kind of hard to get a read on that's the reason i did cat art show was because they're so multifaceted they're going to be loving you one second and telling you to back off the next they could be it was Katz's muse and that is just such a broad interpretation and again there is a great divide between cat culture and dog culture and i think that cat culture was so untapped and so ripe for in, in the advent of the cat video and this sort of marriage of cat and pop culture that fed into that millennial technically demographic, that's the catalyst from cat art show to cat con because I saw, thank you, uh, I got puns all the time. Um, <laughs> there was so much fodder in the artistic side of what cats mean and in hearing what people said when they came to the show that really propelled me and pushed me to create CatCon, that this was a completely untapped market. A highlight of CatCon is the 20 plus talks and seminars from leading cat influencers and their humans, as well as leaders in the world of cat content creation. Yeah, I'll give you some of the titles, some of my favorite titles over the years. My Cat's a Celebrity and How I've Dealt With That, Debunking the Cat Lady Myth, Cannabis and Cats, What You Need to Know, Write Meow, I Adopted a Cat, Now What? Men and Cats, A Love Story, and then the one about cats was Joanne Biondi, who was a photographer for um, Nat Geo back in the day. And if you think yeah, photographing yeah. a cat is easier, it's if you think photographing a cat is easy, it's not something like that. And she went into this whole thing about how to photograph a cat. And then Ben Ha talking about the advent of cat culture. So it's really been a composite of information and education and entertainment. That's why I like that sort of moniker of Comic-Con for cat people, because yeah. we're trying to give them everything. One of my favorite parts of CatCon are all 
all the crazy direct-to-consumer products. Um, I don't know if I saw it there first. Did you guys, were the folks who invented that, that cat tongue that allows you to groom? Yes, the licky brush, the licky brush. brush. I bought a licky brush. And for, I'll just say what a licky brush is. It's a product where it's like a rubber cat tongue with bristles on the back. And you put it in your mouth where there's like a mouth guard. Um, and it allows you to groom your cat in the way a cat would groom another cat so you could lick your cat. They got laughed off of Shark Tank. I, I saw the episode. But just out of sheer ridiculousness, I think they've sold a lot of those tongues. But was the licky brush there? I, I, I swear that's where I saw them first. Well, if you Google Jimmy Kimmel licky brush, they were on Jimmy Kimmel right before CatCon, and he had a licky brush on the show where he was <laughs> trying it out on a stuffed cat. Yes, they're very successful at CatCon. Very, very successful. And the way that you described it is something very pornographic, but I think it makes sense because that's sort of, you know, that's the thin line between cat product and porn product. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, there is science behind it because it's yes. apparently it's how you bond with your cat, you know, and, and with those, you know, cats. That's not how I bond with my cat, but... No, no, but I mean, I mean, it's the way cats bond with one another in the right. wild. Apparently, you know, in the way that chimps establish hierarchy through grooming practices. That's the way cats establish uh, their, you know, hierarchy and stuff like that. You, you mentioned Kimmel. Seems like everybody does their their one remote stand up from CatCon. Uh, uh, you know, and it's like, it's the, you know, great gag of, hey, you know, look at all the cat people. What have been some of your favorite remotes from the show? Um, I did like the one that Ellen did. Ellen was there. She sent her crew. I think it was 2018. They had a guy who came dressed up as a cat and he talked to Julie Newmar, uh, who was Catwoman from the 70s, late 60s. She was sort of the doyenne of CatCon for two or three years, sort of holding yeah. court. So that was a great piece. And then last year, Nightline did an amazing, they did a whole segment on us, which was amazing, talking about cat culture. And they interviewed Nala and Angela Kinsey was there. She was one of our talent for last year. We, we do- oh, From the office, right, right. From the office. We do attract a lot of celebrities over the years, like Jerry Ferrara from Entourage, probably one of the last people that you would think would go to CatCon. Turtle, yeah, he should be at Repticon. He he came with his wife. Seth Green has come a number of times, as well as to Cat Art Show. Cat Von D, Mario Hemingway, Drew Carey, Ian Summerhalder, Macaulay Culkin, Brenda Song, Cat Dennings. COVID has forced CatCon to take a bit of a cat nap until that day we're allowed to be in public with one another again. Instead, Michaels is taking CatCon virtual. We are doing CatCon from your couch. And what that is, is that's happening in October. I am producing, I'm already producing basically a huge amount of content, seven hours, six to seven hours of content that will oh. span two days and will culminate with something that I did in 2017, which was the CatCon Awards. It's kind of like the people's choice for cat people. Mm -hmm. That's great. So when we did it in 2017, we live streamed it. We had 50,000 people view it and it was in a theater with 3,000 people. And we had things like biggest newcomer, best vocalist, advocate of the year, things like that. So we're doing that again and in the process of working on 
you know, who our presenters are. Michaels couldn't volunteer who their hosts for the awards will be, but did offer that the world-famous Australian firefighters, known for their beefcake calendars where they pose with kittens, will be broadcasting live from down under for the show. I don't know about you, but George and I won't miss it for the world. Has your pet put on the quarantine 15? They look cute with some extra pounds, but pet obesity is no laughing matter and is currently an epidemic in America. We talked to the pet show's pet vet about what to do if your pet has got some extra blubber. You know, we're so used to looking at our pets every day that, and this has happened to me in my life, like with peaches, it's all of a sudden one day I realize, oh, she's putting on some pounds here. But it's just like us, it's really kind of hard to tell when you see, see yourself every day. It takes a while, other people notice who haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you've put on weight. Right? It's more than a little weight though. Like we're talking, you know when you go out sometimes and you see that dog that's so severely obese that it has trouble right. breathing and it's, and it's, it's waddling? That's really what we're talking about here. I mean, these pets are so fat. It looks like the pet ate the other pet. And I think it comes from two things. One, the serving portions that we give ourselves and we give our pets are just enormous. Like, right. like it says a cup, but yeah, it's not a 7-Eleven big gulp cup. And that's what we wind up giving the pet. And then the yeah. other thing is we, we treat these pets yeah. like family. So we're giving them table scraps and, and, and birthday cake and all this stuff. So they're you know, right there to receive it. And then yeah. there's stuff that they get into and uh, other food sources. Yeah. I mean, People really need to stick to what is recommended for the particular breed and size and age of their pet. I'm talking, I guess, in dogs, because that's what I know most. And then the other thing is the exercise. Like, you got, like, dogs need, they have to be taken outside. They have to, you know, you got to take them out. Right. They, yeah, they really need to get outside. They need to get all that extra energy out. And it usually happens, uh, you feed them, Peaches goes out to take a poo, and then all of a sudden she's ready to play. <laughs> there it goes. That's right, folks. There's a growing epidemic of pet obesity in America that's threatening to swallow our furry friends whole if we don't do something to slow their roll at chow time and get them outside and moving. In a 2019 study from the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention, or APOP, they determined that 59.5% of cats and 55.8% of dogs are classified as severely overweight or obese. In addition, Banfield Pet Hospitals, a leading national pet care organization, recently listed America's fattest pet states, analyzing information from over 2.5 million dogs and half a million cats. Interestingly, the states with the pudgiest pets often weren't the same as the states with the highest rates of human obesity. For example, southern states, including Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi, have some of the highest obesity rates in the nation, but they had some of the lowest rates of pet obesity. The states with the greatest percentage of portly pets was Minnesota, in which 40% of all dogs and 46% of all cats were listed as severely overweight or obese. 
And in second place for both species was Nebraska. Rounding up the top 10 of fattest pet states, number three is Michigan, number four, Idaho, number five, Nevada, number six, New Mexico, number seven, Washington State, number eight, Utah, number nine, Indiana, and number 10, Oregon. And now to talk about the repercussions of pet obesity on your pet's health, we reached out to our very own Dr. Ruth, the pet vet, to answer our questions on what to do and how to prevent your pooch or pussy from getting too fat. Let's have a listen. Obesity, sadly, is one of the most common medical issues we deal with in veterinary medicine. The first thing I always tell people is that it's really important that people understand that an overweight uh, overweight pet may be cute, but they're not healthy. Um, you know, just like people, obesity can lead to diabetes, like you mentioned, heart problems, respiratory problems, arthritis and joint problems. And so, um, you know, it's really important that people understand that because again, you know, pets that are overweight, they're cute, they're, you know, they're, there's just more of them to love, you know, just like us, but um, it is a problem and it definitely can lead to a number of different health issues. What are some of the health issues that stem from pet obesity? Most common things that we worry about when a pet is overweight is that it can lead to diabetes, can lead to heart problems, respiratory problems. Extra weight puts more, uh, you know, more weight on the joints and more pressure on the joints. So we see more osteoarthritis in dogs and cats that are overweight. We see problems with them walking. Mobility is definitely affected. So that's a big concern, um, as well as respiratory problems as, um, in pets. So, so really, again. And it, it is a health issue. It's not, this isn't a vanity issue in pets, but obesity is really something that can predispose pets to a number of different medical problems. And studies actually show that it shortens the lifespan of a pet. So what can I do if I suspect that my pet is getting a little bit chunky? Well, the most important thing is that people see their veterinarian right away. Dogs and cats come in a variety of different sizes and shapes, as you know, and so uh, it's not always easy for people to know if their pet is overweight. That's the biggest thing that I face as a veterinarian is that I have a lot of clients that love and adore their pets and do everything for them and they don't even realize that their pet is overweight. Again, because dogs and cats come in so many different sizes and shapes and fur types and sometimes they think it's hair and fur. So I always recommend people check with their veterinarian to find out if their pet is a healthy weight. That's the first thing. If your veterinarian finds that your pet is overweight, then they will help you determine a goal weight. The other reason that it's so important that you see your vet before you put your pet on a diet, if you think they're overweight, is because sometimes obesity is due to a medical condition. So dogs in particular can be prone to hypothyroid disease. Um, hypothyroid disease is common in humans as well. So a lot of people know about it. And it's basically a decrease in the thyroid hormone and it makes them prone to obesity. So you wanna make sure that you rule this out first and any other issues that your pet may be having. Um, and so again, that's why I always say, see your veterinarian first. So what do you think is causing this epidemic in pet obesity? 
people don't mean to do this to their pets. They're, you know, killing them with kindness. They're sharing their food. They're giving them table scraps. They're not measuring the food properly. One of the things I hear a lot as a veterinarian is that people will say, well, I just, you know, I only give my dog two cups of food. And then when we ask about the cup size, they're taking like, you know, the 7-Eleven big gulp <laughs> size <laughs> cup and scooping it. And so, um, so it's really important that people measure the food with, with, you know, real, you know, real measuring cups. So make sure you're getting an accurate measurement of what your pet is consuming. And then remember treats and table scraps add to that. They add calories. So even if you're really good and you're only feeding your pet exactly what they're supposed to be getting, but you're supplementing with tons of people food and treats and dog biscuits and snacks, those are adding calories. And so that's a big thing that I tell people. And then obviously exercise is huge. It's really important that our pets are getting exercise just like us. Is there a daily minimum amount of exercise that's recommended for dogs? You know, like you said, unfortunately, it really varies. It depends on not just the breed and the size of the animal, but also their age and other factors. Some animals, because of mobility issues, if they have arthritis or other things, can't be super mobile. But then there's other things you can do with them, like swimming. Swimming is a great exercise. One of the things I get asked a lot about is cats. So people will say, well, how do I exercise my cat? But you can. There are things you can do for cats. I actually talk about this on the show that doctors and I talked about ways to exercise your cats and you can do things like playing with them with laser pointers to get these guys moving they love to chase a laser pointer it's loads of fun for people as well to watch them and it gets them moving <laughs> definite great pandemic <laughs> exercise yeah, and yeah, entertainment absolutely. for humans the other thing that I tell people is to make cats work for their food. So, you know, don't put the food, if you have a kitty that's overweight, but otherwise young and healthy, don't put the food right by their bed. Put the food, you know, if you have a multi-level house, put the food on a different level so they have to walk up the stairs to get it. Put the food on a counter so they have to jump. Um, again, you want to make sure they're healthy and they can jump and do that before you do, you know, put the food there. But different, there's different things you can do to get kitties moving and active. And it's important that people don't forget about them because we see a lot of overweight and obese cats that are inside and people aren't exercising them and they're not paying attention to what they're feeding them either. They're just free feeding them. There you have it, folks. Portion control and exercise are the key. I wish I had that same discipline for myself, but there you go. Anyway, more good advice from Dr. Ruth Ann McPeat, a.k.a. Dr. Ruth Petvet. For more tips, check out her website at drruthpetvet.com or see her on The Doctors, Good Morning America, and The Weather Channel. We'll talk to you later. take a trip now to the beating heart of animal Instagram and talk to the voice behind animals and doggos doing things. By far the two largest meme pages devoted to pets on Instagram, combining for almost 8 million fans. We want to talk to them about the work that goes into creating these signature pages and whether or not there's some secret formula to creating the perfect pet meme. And now for the first time, we unmask 
the voice behind these pages, John Truly, the furry meme master himself. <laughs> Say I love you. Say I love you. My name is John Truly. I I guess you could say I run Instagram pages. Um, I started like a meme page five years ago called Cabbage Cat Memes. And then I branched off kind of into the animal world and I do doggos doing things, cats doing things, and I run animals doing things. Yeah, I think there's about 10 million followers. Asking what a good meme is, is like asking what makes a good joke. Other than it being funny, there's really not any specific formula to making somebody laugh or creating a picture that you want to share with someone else. But is there a formula? I'd say like 75% of the meme is just the photo. The photo would do fine on its own anyway. And you're just kind of typing something that relates it in like a, a silly or ridiculous way to everyday life. My humor's always kind of been like anti-jokes, say like sarcastic, I guess. So just doing something ridiculous with the reaction of the dog or cat, whatever animal you have. Mixing that text with a funny, like wholesome picture of an animal is funny. Do you find a difference in the types of people that are attracted to your cats doing things pages versus your dogs doing things pages? Like, do you see a divide? Is there like a, a divide in the, in the dog-cat spectrum? I mean, everybody is very into the animal that they like. I think there's a divide there. Lots of times, like, people on the dog page will just say, like, cats are assholes or whatever. But I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on here, but... Where do you fall on the dog-cat spectrum? I grew up with dogs. I always had dogs. And then I, I lived with, like, a disabled cat for three years who kind of became, like, my best friend. So, honestly, I think at this point I'm just 50-50. Truly's pages were recently acquired by Doing Things Media, publisher of Shithead Steve, Middle Class Fancy, Neat Dad, and a host of others, combining for some 30 million fans. The result for Truly and his pet pages has been a bombardment of DMs from around the world, all of them saying, look at my pet, sometimes even worse. We've had videos of dogs pooping on beds, and I'm just like, I don't know why you would send that to me, but I don't post stuff like that. I think Instagram would take it anyway, but there's just tons of people in other countries that are obsessed. Like the cat, the cat DMs are kind of funny. They just send pictures of cats all day. They're like, look at mine. He's, the quality is not great, but they're just so excited. So I try to talk to them a little bit. I mean, everyone must think that their cat is like special, you know, like, like the most special cat in the world. Yeah. And I know and I think mine is, but... I mean, yeah. that's like, it's like no one thinks their baby's ugly. Yeah, exactly. It's like nobody's wrong, but once you get this level of followers, like people want to see good quality. <laughs> so a lot of videos are just dark or it's like just a dog laying on a couch and they're like, look how cute it is. I'm like, true, but I can't show that to 2.5 million people right now. <laughs> the day in the life of a meme writer is an act of constant repetition. Groundhog's Day. Find a picture, write a caption, repeat. Truly figures he spent close to 80,000 hours on Instagram looking at pictures of dogs and cats. I'm extremely addicted to my phone. Uh, 
I'm on it. I have to be like available at all times. I get DMs 24 hours a day from animal pages all over the world, like sending me stuff or asking questions. I wake up, I kind of, I get out the laptop and look at like submissions, all the stuff that people have been sending, which could be, I can look through hundreds today, hundreds of videos. And then out of those, I get through that in like an hour and a half or two hours. And I kind of just pick like the top five or 10 out of all of them. It's like a 95% no go on those. So I kind of like save all of those. I check out Reddit, Twitter, everything else for like meme trends that are going on. Facebook, check out some explore pages, collect memes, make some memes. I don't know, like it's not really like an eight hour in a row job. I think my phone tells me I use it like 13 hours a day. So it's like at night, I can save some stuff for the next day just on TikTok. And I reach out for videos everywhere to see if we can use them because we don't post anything without permission. Basically, I like TikTok a lot now. It's like a next level of pet videos. Why do you like it for, for pets so much? What is different about it then from, say, Instagram? I don't know if it's just like, it's kind of a younger crowd and like they're better at knowing what a good video is. They're better at editing videos. They choose music. The music element I like a lot. They'll choose music that matches the video really well. So it just adds like a whole atmosphere to it or like makes it really funny. But on Instagram, it's kind of just like, it could be because I've seen, I've spent like 80,000 hours on Instagram, but- You're jaded, man. Yeah, I just like seeing something new with like new, like these like 12 year old kids on TikTok are like better editors than I'll ever be. Animal memes are the one bright spot on Instagram. In a sea of bad news, politics, and what seems like the coming apocalypse, I can count on doggos doing things to make me laugh or the made up language of an evil cat sticking his head through a bread slice on the equally golden cats doing things. It's manna from heaven. For this John truly is an artist. We thank you, sir. And the pet show salutes you. Talk to you later. Carol Baskin killed her husband, whacked her. Can't convince me that it didn't happen. Fed them to tigers, they snack it. What's happening? Carol Baskin. Next up on the pet show, it's the brave new world of pet cloning. Right now in Dallas, Texas, a commercial genetics company is pioneering a way for you to have the same pet for the rest of your life, or at least a version of it. Would you clone your pet? Uh, would you clone peaches if you could? It costs 50 grand and they will give you an exact clone of peaches. Really? Yes. I would definitely clone peaches, but I would wait to clone peaches and only if something happened that, you know, peaches wasn't here. Only time I've ever heard about it really happening was in Korea. And there was this documentary that I watched called Tabloid. And this woman, there was another story about how she had was obsessed with this Mormon guy. But then later on, the story went into, she had a dog named Booger and she cloned Booger uh, five times. I think they had five puppies and they were all the same and they all knew Booger's tricks intuitively. So uh, I don't have too much trust 
her faith and, and, and her validity of that. But uh, I'm sure uh, something like that could happen. I mean, the dog would have the same disposition. I mean, we are who we are when we're born, even as people, don't you think? If you thought the idea of genetically cloning your pet was far into the realm of science fiction, think again, because it's happening right now in Dallas, Texas, inside the laboratory of Viagen Pets, where for $50,000, a team of geneticists will clone your favorite pup. Cats cost a little bit less. For some, the dream of never having to say goodbye to a beloved pet is a dream worth the substantial financial cost. In 2018, actress and singer Barbara Streisand revealed that two of her dogs were cloned by Viagen. Some find the practice of cloning beyond the pale and inhumane. Cloning experiments reflect a spirit common to all systematic forms of cruelty to animals, says the Humane Society of America. They treat animals as commodities alone instead of as living individuals with needs and natures of their own. Still, plenty of people are looking past these issues and simply focusing on the joy of being reunited with a pet they love and at some point may have lost or simply continuing their lifespan indefinitely into the future. We recently spoke with Viagen to understand these issues, plus what it takes to make a pet. Let's have a listen. From my recollection, the company Viagen was started probably 18 or 19 years ago by a gentleman, I think his name was Lou Hawthorne, um, that wanted to clone his personal dog named Missy. And he was the stepson of the gentleman that um, created University of Phoenix. I can't remember his name. Very, very wealthy gentleman. This was created because he wanted to clone his personal dog. And ultimately, he ended up having his personal dog cloned in Korea with Suam. So they took the company and decided to shift it to focusing on livestock. So Viagen initially um, was cloning horses, cows, sheep, pigs, that type of stuff. So over the years, we always stored the DNA of dogs and cats, as well as trophy deer and, you know, some other random animals that perhaps a zoo or something might reach out to us and say, can we preserve this? Throughout the years, ownership has changed multiple times of the company. And in 2015, we, after receiving tremendous requests for a long time from our pet clients, we decided to start researching how we could start cloning dogs and cats. Understanding how the science of pet cloning works requires some basic knowledge of genetics. Unfortunately, I barely passed high school biology. So to get a better understanding, I had the process explained to me like a four-year-old by reaching out to Viagen and asking them what it would take for me to clone my beloved shelter cat, George. So if you were to call us today and say, I want to clone George, The very first step, regardless if you're going to clone or not clone, is we need to store the DNA of your pet. And we call that service genetic preservation. And again, we've been preserving genetics for dogs and cats for 18 plus years. We just didn't start cloning them until 2015. We would ship either you or your veterinarian a kit, and inside that kit is everything that your vet needs to take the sample. That's $1,600. And every year after that first year, there's an annual storage fee of 150. So have you ever had a mole removed from your body? Yes. Okay. Basically the same procedure for your dog or your cat. 
So your veterinarian would take this little um, hole punch that's kind of about the size of the tip of this pencil, actually slightly smaller, it's a four millimeter, and they would do a local anesthesia just to numb the area, do the little punch, pull it out, get the skin sample. We ask that we get at least two samples because sometimes a sample could be compromised or maybe there's too much fat and they can't quite get enough skin. So we ask for two to four samples and that's all. Your veterinarian will do one stitch at each of those um, sample locations and that's all we need. So we get that in our lab here in Cedar Park, Texas. We're in a suburb of Austin and we culture those over about a two to three week period of time. Each one of those samples grows into potentially millions of cells and each one of those cells contains 100% the DNA of your pet. So if you decided you wanted to clone Georgie, we take an egg from a donor cat. So we would sponsor spay clinics where folks can go get their cat spayed. Uh, it's no charge to them, but they know that they're donating the reproductive tract to research. So in addition for us taking those eggs, we are also doing some research on kind of the reproductive system and growth and development. So um, we'll take an egg from a donor cat and we extract the DNA. So we'll put a little pipette in there, extract the DNA and it's hollow. So now we have an egg that there's nothing in it. So then we take, all we really need is one cell of the potentially millions that have grown from Georgie. We implant it into the embryo and via our patented technology, um, it starts developing. So no sperm is needed and the egg starts growing. So at that point, you know, after several days, kind of like IVF, if you're familiar with IVF in humans, we allow them to grow and multiply and divide. We could potentially just freeze the embryos at some point, or we implant them into our own surrogates. So we have our own surrogate animals. They implant very similar to IVF. They have a normal, healthy gestation. So dogs and cats are about 62 days, give or take. Horses are almost an entire year. After a normal, healthy gestation, normal, healthy birth, you've got literally a genetic twin to your original pet. We're not tweaking or changing at anything. A lot of people are curious if we're doing gene editing. We're not. It's literally like a twin just born at a later time and place from your original pet. The pet will stay with us until eight weeks till it's fully weaned, depending on if it's going to a different country that is quarantined, um, or restrictive rules, they may have to stay with us a little bit longer, in which case we typically try and find a trainer so they're not missing that critical early developmental stage of training and bonding and socialization, which we do a lot of that ourselves. But as you, if you've had pets before, well, you have a cat, you know that kind of like um, the first couple of months is, is really important for them to yeah, not have fair. fear. That's when they get, they get a lot imprinted upon Exactly. So we would send them to a trainer and work with the client on, you know, how to get them shipped, you know, wherever they're going or we'll deliver if we need to. Um, but our contract does state that the client would come pick them up. That's included in the fee. But if they want us to deliver, that's an extra cost. So how much is all this going to cost me? Now, the genetic preservation price is exactly the same for all species. That's $1,600 to store the DNA. And then there's $150 annual storage fee every year. Cat cloning is 35,000, dog cloning is 50,000, and horse cloning is 85,000. Now, if you were to um, you know, store the DNA of your cat today, but in 10 years decided to clone, we would deduct your initial genetic preservation and all your annual storage fees off of that final amount. And then when you sign a contract, we require 50% down and the balance is due upon delivery. And how many are you, do you guys do in a year? 
would you say? We're doing several hundred dogs and cats a year, wow. um, but we have a waiting list. You know, right now we're telling clients, if you sign a contract today, it could be three or four months till we actually start creating your embryo cell line to do a, um, an implant. Uh, and then of course you've got the gestation, which is roughly two months or so. Um, give or take a couple of weeks that, and then that, you've got yeah. yeah and then you've got the the weaning period which is eight weeks until they can go home even though i was given the full genetic pitch of having george cloned none of this felt totally real until i connected with manika and is that your cloned pup back there that that just yeah. ran, that just ran away yes yeah. this is her jelly <laughs> Monique and I are talking via Zoom while her cloned Yorkie runs around in the background. She's a YouTube influencer and the host of CW's The Look All-Stars. Her new clone named Jelly is a replacement for her beloved dog, Angel. So let me ask you a question. What made you decide to go through with cloning your pet? If you can sort of walk me through. Yeah, sure. So. I've actually, I've had so many, I've had a lot of pets just because being an animal lover my whole life and always having, like right now I have four dogs and a cat at one time. The original dog was named Angel and she was just really special because she was like the dog I had from childhood and then when I moved out to LA, she came with me to LA and then when I got my own house, she was there too. So she'd kind of like been there through childhood, through teenage years into adult life. So she was just really really special and when she started to get sick I was just like researching stuff and I didn't even know cloning was possible and then I came across Viagen pets and I was like oh wow that's awesome like cloning is here it's real and it's like in the U.S. too and I looked into Viagen and they were just such amazing animal lovers who really care about animals and are really passionate about it. So, and then I took the next steps, which is you get a little skin biopsy. A great time to do it is like if your pet's getting a dental cleaning, they just take a tiny skin biopsy and then they grow like a cell line from that and it's called genetic preservation. So once they have that, they can at any point in the future clone your pet. We got that done when she was alive and then after she passed away, a few months later, I decided I wanna go ahead with the cloning. Now, the day that she arrived, what was that like for you? Like, did you go pick her up? Was was she delivered to you? What was that like? They delivered her to me. And actually, I have a video. I We did like some videos and photos the first day she came here. And it was really surreal. Well, first of all, what I love about them is every week before you even get the clone puppy, they have like photo shoot day for them. So you get to see photos of them when they're one day old, one week, two weeks, all the way up until eight to 12 weeks, which is when you can take them home when they don't need a nurse anymore. Yeah, it was really amazing, surreal. Even from those videos, I could see little traits. Well, obviously look very similar, <laughs> but you could also see like little traits that only like Angel did, like out of all the dogs I've had. I've even had other of the same breeds and there were little traits that she did that only Angel did. And then when I saw her in person, it was really crazy because it was like being in a time war back when I was 10 years old, when I saw the little puppy Angel for the first time. So it was really surreal. It, basically, the it's an identical twin, but born on a later date. How close that, are they behaviorally? Behaviorally. One thing I had to remember is she wasn't going to act like Angel did when she died because Angel was 14 and a half years old. This is a puppy. So when I compare it to like when she was a puppy, it was very similar, actually. Just a lot of little quirks she did. She's very spastic and energetic, just like Angel was as a puppy. Yeah. 
there's a lot of similarities, definitely. Now, what were you hoping for when you got her? Like, did you want Angel back? I mean, I'm just, I'm curious mm -hmm. in terms of the motivation. Yeah, I kind of feel like Angel's legacy kind of like lives on. Now, how do you feel about the idea that in the future, we might have the same pets for the rest of our lives? <laughs> I think that's really cool. And it's not exactly like having the same exact pet, but it's like having their like legacy live on, kind of like with humans, how, you know, they have kids, they have grandkids. There's certain things about each pet, certain quirks, personality quirks, physical quirks that you really just fall in love with. And I learned like when I ever I lose a pet, it's like those little things that I like really miss. And when you have a pet that does those same little quirks and stuff, it just cheers you up and reminds you of the happy times with the other pets. So I think that's super cool. Were you inspired at all about hearing about Barbara Streisand or some of those other folks? Definitely, she actually did hers after me. And I was like super excited when I found out and saw the articles that, you know, I think it's a great thing and more people should do it if they have the means to do the genetic preser preservation if they have the means to. And it kind of just also gives you that sense of relief when you're grieving, knowing that, you know, it's not the end. Do you think in the future, say you had children, would you take the next step and like if you lost a child, knock on wood, that never happens. Yeah. But, but could you ever see yourself cloning a loved one if that became within the realm of possibility, knowing the positive experience that you've had cloning a pet? If it were the reverse, if my loved ones wanted to clone me, because that would make them feel better and not grieve as much, I'd be like, okay, sure. My final question posed to Manika, is where all of this inevitably leads. How we treat our pets as a society is ultimately a reflection on who we are as a people. It seems for Manika and for others, the ethics of cloning and the profound issues that they raise are in fact no issue at all. Simply, if it can be done, it will be done. And for those who wish to avoid the pain of losing someone they love, they believe in all sincerity that it should be done. And for this, welcome to the future. Hey, Dennis, do you want to talk about the, the big interview that we have coming up this Thursday? Stay tuned because we're going to be talking to Bruce Cameron, author of A Dog's Purpose, as well as the series of A Dog's Journey. And there is one more coming your way. And hopefully I'm going to be in that one, too. And Peaches. And Peaches. Now you're friends with Bruce Cameron, yeah? Do you know him? Yes, I met him on the set. He would come out to the set and, and, and stay a while, see how it was going, and had really several fascinating talks with him about dogs, dogs' relationship with man going back 7,500,000 years ago. He really has a, a unique perspective. He can get into a dog's mind, that's for sure. They say that, you know, a dog is uh, really has the intelligence and uh, basic needs and uh, personality of a two-year-old as far as their vocabulary and whatever. And that's proved time and time again. This is going to be an interesting conversation. The Pet Show is produced by Audio Up and is written and hosted by me, Jimmy Jalinek, and Dennis Quaid. Executive producers are Jared Gustat and David Hurwitz and Dennis Quaid. Our editor is Bill Marked and our story producer is Emma Rapold. Have a great week. We'll talk to you later.